you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. So we're going to be this morning in verses 25 to 35. And we're going to be closing out our series, our Advent series, as we continue to think about together, to ponder um, what it looks like to live between the two Advents. The word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning the coming or the arrival of Jesus. And so we live in this in-between, the first coming of Jesus, while we look forward to the second coming of Jesus when he comes back and he cracks the eastern sky and he establishes his kingdom here on earth. And, and I want to read this uh, story to you. I bet that even those of you who've grown up in church, I've been a Christian now for 27 years. I've never heard a sermon on uh, Simeon. We're going to read on this obscure, ordinary, older man um, who has something to teach us about what it means to, to wait on God uh, in the midst of brokenness. And, uh, and, and thinking about this passage, Simeon is just an ordinary layperson. He's an ordinary man. He's an older man. Many, by tradition, this, these are uh, Simeon's last words. If you grew up in church, you may have recited the prayer of Simeon. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. It comes from a Latin word here. I read this passage, uh, now let your servant depart in peace. And uh, thinking about how often we disregard the words of the elderly among us. We take the elderly, the, the aged, and we put them into nursing homes. We roll our eyes as they tell us stories around the dinner table. I know in this season, where many of us won't get to be around elderly parents and grandparents, we may never take that privilege for granted again. My point of being, we don't often listen to the old. We assume they have nothing to teach us. We live in a time marked by novelty, right, and kind of the latest innovation, the latest app, the latest technology. And we tend to kind of put a premium on the advice of the young and the up-and-coming and those who are successful and competent who've made it at a young age. I mean, think about uh, your circles of thought leadership, the people you surround yourself with. How many of them are over the age of 50, over the age of 60, over the age of 70? We don't know exactly how old Simeon is, but we know that Anna is about 84 years old in this parallel passage, and so we assume that Simeon is up in age. And yet what we learn in the scriptures is, uh, though the glory of young men, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament says, is in their strength, the glory of the aged is in their wisdom, their silver hair, their deep knowledge and insight into the heart of God. And so we're going to listen this morning and learn from an elderly man who many thought was crazy about what it means to wait on God, to see God in the ordinary stuff of life. So I want to read this to you uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting or longing for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. For, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, So the context of this passage, we have this man named Simeon. And um, it's important to understand kind of the background of what's happening in, in uh, kind of right before this as Jesus is presented at the temple. So we talked about the, the birth of Jesus over the last several weeks. And when a Jewish baby was born, according to Jewish law, a woman would become ceremonial, ceremonially unclean upon the birth of a child. On the eighth day, a male child was to be circumcised, according to the Old Testament law, uh, the Mosaic law. And then the mother would be unclean for an additional 33 days, 66 if the child was female, according to Leviticus 12. At the conclusion of this period, the mother and father would offer a sacrifice, a lamb if they were of means. And in this case, we see the poverty of Mary and Joseph in that uh, they offered two doves or two young pigeons. And this was an act of kind of presenting the child to the Lord. And, And the Lord was redeeming, so to speak, kind of buying back this child. We see that in the story of Hannah, which forms the background for Samuel of Mary's prayer. Uh, She dedicates her son Samuel to the Lord. And so in that context here, um, we have Simeon coming into the temple in the spirit, um, recognizing Jesus, seeing Jesus, and blessing Jesus' family. The text says that Luke wants us to know that Simeon was this man. We don't know much about Simeon. It's the only time that he's mentioned in the Bible is a very short play in the scripture, in this story. But he was a man that was, like Anna, waiting for the consolation of Israel. This word consolation is a, is a Greek word, uh, it's periklesis, periklesis. And it means comfort or encouragement. It was a word that in the Hebrew imagination would, was meant to draw people's attention back to the stories in in the prophets like Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 40, this is the the consolation of Israel. This is what every Jewish person grew up longing for and waiting. We see here Simeon kind of uh, giving voice to this longing, this deep ache. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity or her sin is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, the backdrop to this passage in Isaiah is the judgment of God's people. As they turned away from him in rebellion after he delivered them out of uh, Egypt and the Exodus event and brought them into the promised land, they turned away from God and fell into idolatry. They sinned against God by trusting in Uh, their military, by trusting in foreign powers, by trusting in everything other than God himself to rescue them and to be for them their great happiness and joy and delight. And so they were exiled. They were were captured by foreign powers and they were brought into captivity and and they were judged. And that judgment uh, included God's presence leaving the temple. I mean, the, the worst possible thing that could happen if you're an Israelite. The center of God's presence all of a sudden is empty. And, and through the decades and through the generations, this continued. Even when they were brought back from cat- captivity and this small little remnant was preserved, they were taken captive by another foreign power, the Roman Empire, the rising Roman Empire. 
Alexander the Great and the Caesars and the Herods. And there was this long period over multiple generations, we've talked about this a lot, of oppression and violence and dominance and uh, greedy exploitation economically. And so these people sat in literal oppression, longing to be comforted, to know that the time when their sins would be punished and discipline was over. They're, they're weary and they long to hear God tenderly come alongside them and to, to, to just hold them and to say the time of your warfare is over. Your sins have been forgiven. You're going to receive the compassion of God. It's a longing for the Messiah and the coming of the age of the Spirit when the Spirit is poured out on God's people and His presence now lives among them again. One of the things that's fascinating to me about this passage, um, as you think about Simeon going into the temple with this longing, think about the daily longing and expectation of Simeon. I mean, think about what it would have been like to wait for the Messiah, to be spoken to by the Holy Spirit and say, you're going to see the Messiah's face before you die. Day after day, he goes into the temple with a sense of eager anticipation. Is today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day when I'm going to see him? He goes home, not today. And he goes back the next day. Is today going to be the day I'm going to see the Messiah? Day after day, week after week, year after year, there's this patient endurance. And I have to imagine no small amount of disappointment in there as well. Until one day, Mary and Joseph show up in the temple. This baby. Not unlike thousands of other babies that Simeon has seen over the years, and young couples that have entered into the temple. I mean, the temple is the center of not just religious life, but commercial activity. It's the marketplace. It's the mall, right? We don't, it's hard for us to imagine in COVID like what it was like to gather in a, in a busy, crowded space. But it, it was the busiest space in Jerusalem where everybody would come to offer sacrifices. And what's striking to me, what's fascinating to me, is to think about in the midst of all of the clamor, in the midst of all of the noise, in the midst of all of these young couples who likewise would have been bringing their babies to offer them up to the priest for the blessing and the redemption. How did Simeon recognize the one? How did Simeon recognize Jesus as the Messiah? How did he recognize Mary as the mother of Jesus and Joseph as the father I mean, that blows my mind. I mean, Jesus didn't have some kind of tattoo saying, like, I'm the Messiah, up his arm. Mary didn't have any swag saying, like, mother of Jesus. Joseph wasn't walking in, popping his shirt, saying, I'm Jesus' daddy. This painting by Rembrandt, I think, beautifully illustrates the complexity and the and the majesty of what's happening here. In the temple full of people, this is a zoomed in shot, but if you zoom out in Rembrandt's painting, you see the temple in the background. And you see the old man Simeon blessing Jesus and Mary and Joseph. What caught my attention in this picture, if you notice, if you can see it from where you are, is where Simeon's eyes are fixed. Notice his eyes. I mean, like, there was a song that came out in the 90s. Uh, so I'm going to age myself a little bit here. But it was by this female rocker, and it was called, What If God Was One of Us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger one of us, 
trying to make his way out. I don't know if you guys have heard that song. You can YouTube it if you're under the age of 40. But it was this kind of desire to see God, to, to see his face. What would he look like? Would he look like a homeless person? Would he look like a wealthy technocrat? I mean, what would he look like? Isaiah says there's nothing that would draw our attention to Jesus if you saw him in human form. You'd be shocked at how ordinary he was. And what's fascinating about this is, I mean, I think if I were like, to see God, I would just not be able to look away. But Rembrandt paints Simeon as looking through Jesus up to the heavens. And I think that's right. I actually think Rembrandt is brilliant here in understanding what would have been happening in this moment. Simeon saw what hundreds and thousands of people missed. He was looking through Jesus and seeing God. As he had been doing every day for weeks and months and years. Looking to see God. Longing for his salvation. I mean, can you imagine the excitement of like finally coming to that day and you see Jesus and you pick him up in your arms. You've been longing for this your entire life. I mean, I remember just what it was like May the 3rd, 2006. My firstborn son who's back running sound right now. After nine months and some change of anticipation, your first child, we had had a miscarriage with our first child. So technically our second pregnancy. Longing to see this child. My wife was upset with me that day because uh, I got poison ivy like the day before James was born and I had poison ivy oozing literally like I had an allergic reaction all over my body and yet nothing was gonna stop me from picking him up and scooping him up. So put my long sleeves on and I, and I scooped him up and I held him in my arms and it was like this Lion King moment of proud fatherhood. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The thing about scooping up God himself in the flesh with all of that vulnerability, God makes himself vulnerable as a child. And what Simeon was able to do was to look through Jesus in the spirit to see something deeper about what was going on in that moment, to recognize God, to see God. You see, Simeon had communed with God for a long time. And here's this amazing theological truth. And I, I, this isn't my own insight, but somebody pointed this out. I was reading this this week, and I thought, oh my gosh, I've never thought of that before. If Simeon had spent his life communing with God the Father in the Spirit, and if God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time, God is eternally Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means that Simeon had not only been communing with the Spirit and communing with the Father, but communing with Jesus. There was a familiarity that he had with Jesus because he had been communing with him for most of his life. So of course he saw him. Of course he recognized him. That's what he'd been doing his whole life. Singularly focused on communing with God so that when this time came, he knew God. He knew Jesus. He knew his movements. He knew something of his face, something of his presence, something of his aura, though he was just an ordinary child in many ways. See, the difference in this passage 
I think, between Simeon and everyone else, between Anna and everyone else who missed Jesus, was the Holy Spirit. Notice three times in this passage, Luke draws our attention to the fact that Simeon was filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was on him. The Spirit was in him. The Spirit revealed some things to him. Six times up to this point in the book of Luke, Luke mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel writer. Six times up to this point in the book of Luke, Luke has drawn our attention to the fact that the Holy Spirit is doing something supernatural and yet at the same time doing something very ordinary. Like notice the Holy Spirit initiates these supernatural activities, but then it's very ordinary what happens. Like there's a divine conception and an ordinary birth. There's divine revelation and then an ordinary just picking up of a baby, speaking a eulogy, a blessing over him. I found it interesting that Luke would be the one to draw our attention to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know this, but Luke is the only Gentile author in the New Testament that we know of. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews, so maybe Hebrews was, but we think that Luke is the only Gentile author. Now think about that. All the other eyewitnesses that wrote the Gospels, that wrote the New Testament letters, they knew Jesus because they saw him face to face. Matthew walked with Jesus, smelled his breath, knew his scent, heard his jokes, watched him cry his tears. Matthew, Mark, who heard most of what he heard through Peter, Only Luke knew Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the Jesus community. That's how Luke came to know. As a later disciple and follower of Jesus, he came to know Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the working of the early church community. So of course he's gonna draw our attention to the Holy Spirit. That's how we see Jesus. That's how we get to know Jesus, is through the Spirit. Communion with God happens only by the Spirit. Notice uh, the only thing that it says about Simeon in this passage, the only thing we know about his life is that he was righteous and he was devout. That word righteous is the same word for just. So you could also read it. He was just outwardly. He practiced the way of a follower of God and he was devout. He had this inward commitment to communion with God. What he's, what he's trying to tell us here about Simeon is that waiting and seeing Jesus is about a life of communing with God, seeing God, responding to God's presence by being immersed in his spirit. Now contrast Simeon with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I mean, Simeon here talks about the rising and the falling of many in Israel. In other words, Jesus is going to come into the world, but it's not going to be the way that we expect him to come. And only those with eyes to see, Jesus says, and ears to hear, will see him and will know him and will respond to him. In one of the more fascinating passages in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, that is Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Created by him, all of these people, Jesus knit together in, his mother, in their mother's wombs. Yet, 
the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Get this, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but God. And I believe that's God through the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' primary criticism of the religious leaders and the crowds throughout his life and ministry. You see, but you don't see. Like, we can, like, someone's like, man, if I could just see Jesus, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Many people saw him and didn't believe. It was a critical failure to see, to really see Jesus through the Spirit. The reason they missed Jesus is the same reason that we missed Jesus, because he didn't meet their expectations. They had an idea. We could call it like an internal projection, a mental projection. They had an idea of what God would be like if he walked among them. He'd be this military leader. He'd be strong. He'd be a crazy good politician. He'd come with all this competence and overthrow the Roman Empire. He'd be successful. He'd treat the Gentiles like oppressors and destroy them, overthrow them. And yet Jesus comes and he overturns everyone's expectations. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Men in Israel fall because of him, because he doesn't act according to the scripts and the preconceived notions that people have of what God would do or what God wouldn't do. You hear people say that all the time. Well, my God would never I don't really care what your God would never. The question is, would this God never? What does he really look like? What is he really like? And Jesus comes and he says, this is what God's like. I think of the story, like even his disciples struggle with this. Jesus is like fond of calling them slow. Not like mentally slow, but spiritually slow to see what's right in front of your eyes. I think of the story of Jesus' disciples, two of Jesus' disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a beautiful story about Jesus meeting us on the road of our disappointment and our despair. Remember the story? They were leaving Jerusalem, and they were disappointed, devastated would be a better word, despairing because Jesus had just been crucified. And I think the point is that they had an expectation of what Jesus was going to be like, and when Jesus didn't meet their expectation, they were devastated. And so they were on the road to Emmaus, which is just a way to say they were looking for consolation somewhere else now that this whole thing's over with. And Jesus shows up, resurrection appearance. He talks to them, he walks with them. He interprets the scripture from Genesis onward and and says like, how did you not know this is what's supposed to happen? I told you I was gonna die and I'm gonna rise again. And then they get back to this house where they're all meeting, they open up their home to Jesus, they break bread, which many people believe symbolizes the Eucharist, the communion, they worship, and all of a sudden, it clicks. (sighs) We see Jesus. And what happens to Jesus? He disappears. And they look at each other and they say, didn't you sense it? Didn't you feel it burning in your heart? Jesus is reconfiguring their imagination of what it means for him to be Savior, Messiah, Lord, King. We too have a hard time seeing Jesus as he really is. Just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, we live in a world full of discomfort, discouragement, despair. 
We have dreams about what it means to be a disciple, what it means for us to experience the kingdom, only to see them dashed. We have hopes for our lives, what kind of person we're going to marry, what kind of person we're going to be, what kind of business we're going to run or not run, what kind of teacher we're going to be, what kind of doctor we're going to be, what our relationship with our parents is going to look like, what kind of kids we're going to have, what kind of house we're going to live in. And then life happens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this in terms of the wish dream. We have this dream about what's gonna happen. And yet life turns out very differently. And the bitterness and the despair can distract us from seeing Jesus. The hopelessness can turn our eyes to other consolations. We have our own Emmauses that we seek out when Jesus disappoints us. For some of us, it might be politics. For some of us, it might be an addiction. For some of us, it might be a relationship. For some of us, it might be power and achievement and success. What do you do when life brings you discouragement and bitterness of heart? See, we all long for consolation. We do. We want consolation. We live our lives longing to be comforted, longing for someone to hold us and say, hey, it's gonna be okay. To speak tenderly to us in our sin. Tell us there's hope for reconciliation for that relationship that seems dead. And if we're not careful, we fix the eyes of our heart on the wrong objects of consolation. Blaise Pascal, the great Christian philosopher many centuries ago, had this observation about consolation. He said this, all men seek happiness. That's, that's a word for consolation. This longing for happiness, he tries in vain to, uh, to fill with everything around him. Seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God Himself, God alone is man's true good. This is the core of Advent spirituality. Like Simeon, to take us back to the story, we must learn to see Jesus as he really is, to respond to Jesus as he walks among us. We believe, right, that Jesus is still alive. He's risen from the dead. And this is, Fundamentally, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us now. This is why I think Luke it draws our attention time and time again to the ministry of the Spirit. Now, what's fascinating, and we don't have time to do all this, but what's fascinating is even the Greek language for the Holy Spirit. So Jesus grows up. He becomes a man. He lives a righteous, just life. He's devout, right? Like Simeon here is a picture of who Jesus is going to become. Jesus dies at the hands of his oppressors. Willingly lays down his life, not a victim. Rises from the dead and then promises before he dies to send whom into the world? The consolation, the consoler. It's literally the same word, family in the Greek. Periclesis, the consolation of Israel. Jesus promises to give us the Holy Spirit. The word for the Holy Spirit is parakletos. I will give you the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to his disciples. And his job is going to be to wake you up, to give you eyes to see, to give you a heart that burns with knowledge, to give, as Paul says, to enlighten the eyes of your heart, to see me as I really am, 
to respond to me, to fix your gaze internally on me so that as you live your life in the world like Simeon, you too can discern my presence in the world. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's not just on us like he is with Simeon, he's actually now in us. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, the spirit of reality. There's a deeper reality than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, smell with our noses. We'll give you the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father and he will bear witness about me. That's what the spirit does. He draws our attention to Jesus. He gives us the ability to see Jesus to comprehend him, to know him, to respond to him. This is the core of an Advent spirituality. It is learning to pay attention to the Holy Spirit as he helps us discern the presence of Jesus, as Jesus moves among us, as Jesus walks among us, as he speaks to us and around us, right? Like Jesus is still at work in our lives and in the world. He's at work in your family, He's at work in your parents. He's at work in your step-parents. He's at work with your children. He's at work in your body. He's at work in your, in your workplace. He's at work in your neighborhood. He's at work in the midst of a pandemic, right? Jesus is alive and he is at work. But how easy is it for us, like John chapter one, to miss him, to be distracted from seeing him? Man, this is so convicting. To put it poetically, I love the way that Gerard Manley Hopkins says it in his beautiful sonnet, As King's Fishers Catch Fire. The last line of this poem says this, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the features of men's faces. Christ plays in 10,000 places. He's at work all around us. The question is, do we have eyes to see? Do we have hearts to see in the Spirit? See, this is precisely the same thing that Paul invites us to do in Romans chapter 8, which to me is a direct parallel to Luke chapter 2 for the person who lives on this side of the resurrection. Hear these words, Romans chapter 8. Verse 22, I don't have them up on the screen. This is a late edition. You're not supposed to do this when you're a pastor. But I, I thought it was really neat. I wanted you to see it. Romans 8, 22. Paul, a man who was acquainted with suffering and hardship. In a community acquainted with persecution and suffering and hardship and death all around them. Paul writes this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is why I think it's a parallel to Luke 1. There's a childbirth literally that's happening in Luke chapters 1 and 2. He says, now we are midwives also bearing something into the world, bringing something into the world. Creation itself groans. But he says, we also ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait. There's our word, waiting, longing, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Simeon sees Jesus face to face. We do not get to see Jesus face to face right now. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, so many of us in our discouragement, our doubt, we lose patience. We take control. We say, I'm tired of waiting on God. I'm gonna take this into my own hands. Paul says, no. A life of faith is a life of seeing what can't be seen through the Spirit. Likewise, and here it comes, verse 26. The same thing happened to Simeon. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, seeing Jesus, Paul says, seeing Jesus, Simeon says, seeing Jesus, Anna says, begins with an attentiveness to the Holy Spirit. Listening to the Holy Spirit. It begins in this, these very ordinary ways of our, the, the kind of our internal world, the gaze of our hearts, of our, the eyes of our heart being fixed on what only the Spirit can speak to our hearts. I mean, Anna was in the temple decades, doing what? Praying, fasting, worshiping. I mean, very ordinary things. Not changing the world in anyone's eyes in particular, but she still showed up day in and day out. Simeon, I I imagine, these are very parallel stories, doing the same thing. Holy Spirit, what are you doing around me? He's training himself, the eyes of his heart, to see the movement of the Holy Spirit preparing him for the coming of Jesus. One practical way that you can practice this in your own life is just through a simple daily commitment to listening prayer. I believe this is what's at the heart here of Romans chapter eight, is there are just times when life is so hard, when the groaning is so deep, when the confusion is so foggy, when we are so beat down that there are no words to say. We spend a lot of our words, a lot of our time talking at God, keeping up empty phrases as Jesus talks about in the Gospels, anxiously reacting to what's happening in life. But I think the invitation Paul says is, hey, what if you just took time to pause and to be quiet, to center your life on the Spirit, to find that place in the center of your being that is the Spirit of God in you, the true Christ dwelling in you, and you just listen. And you just let the Spirit intercede for you, pray for you. The Spirit knows the words to say, even when we don't know what they are, even when they, they come through as tears for us, when they come through as a chest just so tight that we can't even breathe. The Spirit says, hey, I got this. Stop talking. Let me do the work. Listen, and I will speak. Many of us, we will never hear Jesus, we will never see Jesus because we can't shut up long enough, excuse me. Can't get a word in edgewise. That kind of daily commitment to opening up space for silence, listening to the Spirit. It allows us to live in peace, to have a non-anxious presence in the world, right? That's how we're gonna learn to see Jesus out there is when we first see him in here with the eyes of the heart, that's why Simeon could say, nunc dimittis, 
Now I can depart in peace. As I've lived in peace with you, God, and the Holy Spirit, the entirety of my life, now I can rest. I don't have to strive. I don't have to resist. I don't have to fight with you, but I can go in peace. And as we're attentive to the Holy Spirit in us, we listen to the Spirit in us, we learn to see his movements internally in our hearts, then, like Simeon, we begin to see and discern what Jesus is doing in the world around us in the Spirit. We begin to externally discern and see his presence in the world. It's what some have called sacramental, sacramental living. Being able to understand that we live before the face of God and the presence of God, that Jesus is everywhere. He is at work everywhere. His spirit is at work all around us. And in a posture of listening, we create space for God to overturn our expectations about how he wants to work in our lives. Right? Nobody, nobody, nobody would have expected Simeon to say, Jesus comes to save your oppressors, a light of revelation to the very Gentiles who have their boots on your neck. But because Simeon was open, because he was listening, he didn't fight, he learns to surrender. And he rises. Anna rises. The disciples rise while everyone else falls. Expectation shattered as their hearts, Simeon says, are revealed. We create space in sacramental living, as Gerard Manley Hopkins says, to see Jesus lovely in the limbs of others, in the features of others' faces, in the face of our neighbors, our friends, our enemies. We see God at work. And what God does is he turns interruptions into invitations. That's sacramental living. What seems like an interruption becomes an invitation. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Just like you're, you're, you're praying, you're hearing from God, listening. You're like, God, where are you working today? And then your kids just come running in. No offense, my kids are here. They just come running into the room and they interrupt your prayer. And I found myself sometimes getting mad. Sorry, kids. Getting mad at my own kids. I'm like, I'm praying here. Quit interrupting my time with God. And I miss the obvious, like that God is inviting me to, to, to be with my kids, to respond to them in love, not to see them as an annoyance or distraction, but to see them as the very place where he's at work today. Today, my only job might be to keep my kids alive and sane while we're virtual schooling them. And I'm not going to go out and maybe attend a, a rally or change the world, but I am going to be present to my kids and see, even in the opportunity to feed them breakfast, the Spirit of God at work. This happened to me a couple of months ago, right before the pandemic. I was in my office studying for a sermon and feeling like I felt this Friday. I have nothing to say. I had about 10 words written on my screen as of Friday afternoon. It was one of those days. It was the end of the week. It was about 4.30. I was just going to give up for the day and go home. I was ready to go home. I was tired. All of a sudden, I hear a commotion outside. I think Joel might have been there. Grant was in the office. I hear a commotion outside. I hear yelling. I hear banging and crashing. And I do my best to like tune out whatever's happening outside in the parking lot. Because we're a church and crazy things happen all the time in our parking lot. I was like, Lord, I don't want to deal with this right now. I've got to study this sermon. This is a huge interruption, a huge distraction. 
about 10 or 15 minutes go on. And I'm like, all right, Lord, like, obviously, you're speaking, you're doing something. Go downstairs. There's a young woman in our parking lot, crying, weeping, screeching of tires. The boyfriend pulls off. He had been yelling at her, abusing her, crashing his truck into her car in our parking lot. And she's just devastated, scared. And I remember in that moment just sensing this imitation from God. This is what I need you doing right now. I don't need you to worry about your sermon. I need you to be present to this woman. So Grant and I go out into the parking lot. We invite her into the building. It's one of the few times I listen like this. So don't, don't hear me saying this happens every day. We invite her into the building. We have this beautiful opportunity just to be present to her. She shares her grief. As she shares her fear, she's terrified that this man's going to come back. And he does actually come back into the parking lot. Thankfully, Grant was there, a much bigger man than me. Together, we just showed this woman some hospitality. We got the opportunity to pray with her, to point her to Jesus, to remind her that God is with her, that he's not forgotten about her, that he loves her. Now, I can't end the story. I wish I could say, and then she became a Christian, and then there was this huge revival that broke out in the Glendale neighborhood. I don't know what happened after that, but I know for right then, God wanted to take that little interruption and turn it into an invitation to say, hey, will you just see what I'm doing right in front of you, pastor? Will you see what's happening in your parking lot right now? Because this is your invitation for right now. When you see Jesus in the tears of this woman, see an opportunity to show her compassion. There's a place in the New Testament where it says, by entertaining strangers. Many of you have entertained angels. You've entertained God himself. What would it look like for us to live with that kind of life in the spirit? to be committed to a life of communion with God, seeing God in the ordinary of life at work all around us, turning interruptions, annoyances, distractions into invitations to see him, to know him, to love him, to serve others in his name. Christ's place in 10,000 places. The question is, are we listening are we seeing? Are we responding? If we can't see him, we can't respond to him in the here and now. We'll never see him. We'll never respond to him when he comes again. We don't see him right now. We'll never see him when he comes again. And so this is all training, what we have day in and day out in the ordinary stuff of life with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family, to see him and see his presence at work in the world and to learn to respond to his invitation. And as Simeon said, to be able to see his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to see you. As Simeon saw you face to face, we say with the psalmist, we long to see your face. We long to see your beauty. One thing we ask, God, to behold your glory, to see you in your temple, to see your face. God, I pray that this Advent season we would be compelled by the Holy Spirit. That we, like Simeon, would live faithfully in the waiting and the longing and the expectation that we have. That we would allow you to reorient all of that desire 
that we would not allow anything to dull the ache of our longing. Not social media, not movies, not relationship. We would allow nothing to dull the ache for you. We would live with a sense of a holy anticipation to see your presence, to experience the wonder of your salvation, to extend that to those you placed around us in the name of Jesus. God, help us do what we cannot do in our own strength. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.